If necessity is the mother of invention, then conflict both presents new challenges and opportunities and requires us to consider what our necessities actually are. In this episode of Hindsight, we will explore the development of the women's movement between 1850 and 1875. While we might be prone to focus on this period's most extreme conflict, the American Civil War, in point of fact, this 25-year period is also a dynamic and critical one for the development of the women's movement and its push for political, legal, economic, and suffrage rights. It's a period in which we see the newly acquainted Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton begin to organize a movement around a fully articulated statement of women's rights in the context of the larger international movement for abolition and human rights, but struggle to move it beyond white middle-class women's issues. It's a period in which lesser-known married partners, Francis and Virginia Minor, challenged the U.S. Supreme Court to declare what rights women have as citizens under the 14th Amendment. And it's a period in which racism and regionalism will bitterly divide the nation, the movement, and many friendships, shaping and reshaping the goals of the women's rights movement for decades to come. So hold on for a bumpy ride. I'm Dr. Robin Henry, and this is Hindsight, Episode 2, Conflict and Compromise. to set the origin date for an American woman's movement in 1837, 1848, 1850, or someplace else, there was little doubt that by the end of the first National Women's Rights Convention in 1850, a formal, organized movement had begun to take shape. Held in Worcester, Massachusetts on October 23rd and 24th, more than 900 women and men attended, coming from 11 states, including the newly added California. Over the next decade, the National Women's Rights Convention met annually in cities across New England and the Upper Midwest, and would serve as the launching point for many men and women into careers of reform and public speaking. As William Lloyd Garrison wrote, I doubt whether a more important movement has ever been launched, touching the destiny of the race, than this in regard to the equality of the sexes. The women's rights activists came from other reform movements that thrived in the mid-19th century. All around them, reform-minded women and men saw human-made imperfections that needed their attention. While groups formed to care for widows, orphans, and prostitutes, to address vices such as gambling and crime, to address economic inequality, and to reform marriage and clothing, it was the abolition and temperance movements that became the two most prolific reform organizations of the mid-19th century. Women and men from all of these movements, but especially abolition and temperance, found a home in the women's rights movement. They brought their talents for organizing and enthusiasm for conventions and speeches. But abolitionists, in particular, brought their belief in universal human rights that included women and men, black and white. And so, the men and women who crowded into Brindley Hall in Worcester on that October weekend in 1850 wanted a movement that reflected this commitment to improving the conditions of humankind and universal human rights. 
The convention selected 19 men and women to serve as a steering committee for the year. These members would communicate with each other to plan the next year's convention, but also to fundraise, raise awareness, and establish a network of regional conventions that would bring women's rights speakers to every nook and cranny of the North and the Midwest. This approach connected men, and more importantly, women, from across the country into a single movement. It took people in relatively isolated areas and frontier communities and gave them a voice in the development of the national movement. Finally, this structure meant that women developed invaluable organizing, petitioning, and speaking skills that required conventional society to look at women differently. 1850 may have seen the first National Women's Rights Convention, but it also marked an inauspicious moment for the abolition movement. A month before the convention in Worcester, President Millard Fillmore signed the Fugitive Slave Act. Part of a series of legislation, this act strengthened the Fugitive Slave Clause of the U.S. Constitution by placing all fugitive slave cases under federal jurisdiction, eliminating any safe zone of freedom in the United States. This aggressive act against free northern states' rights accelerated abolitionism into a radical movement that shared many of the same convention strategies, activities, and speakers with the women's rights movement. In fact, up until the end of the Civil War, these movements would be nearly inseparable. Still, even the presence of abolitionists and African-American women's rights advocates, such as Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth, did not automatically mean the women's rights movement addressed black women's rights and needs. At the National Women's Rights Conventions over the next decade, crowds listened to speeches from reformists such as Frederick Douglass, Abby Kelly Foster and her husband Stephen Foster, Sojourner Truth, Lucretia Mott, William Lloyd Garrison, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. While their stated purpose was to secure for women political, legal, and social equality with man, these speakers also addressed women's property rights, access to education, and employment opportunities. Suffrage was sometimes part of the conversation, but not always. While most of the women's rights advocates were white, there were some African-American men and women who also supported women's rights. Frederick Douglass had been part of the women's rights movement since the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848. After her famous speech in 1851, Sojourner Truth became one of the most sought-after women's rights speakers. In the 1850s, other black women such as Charlotte Fortin, Mary Ann Shad Carey, and Sarah Resmond joined the women's rights movement. The black women who joined the movement maintained strong connections with abolitionist organizations in which they often held leadership roles. They took the skills they learned fighting enslavement and racism and applied them to fight against gender norms and sexism. This proved more difficult as many white and black men stopped short of supporting full social, economic, and cultural equality for women. While the women's movement agenda spoke in universal terms, the black feminist agenda focused more on improved work opportunities for women, such as becoming teachers, nurses, or journalists, which Stanton's white middle class agenda rarely addressed. Women like Fortin, Carey, and Resmond had to work between movements, choosing which part of them took precedence issue by issue. Though today we may think of suffrage as synonymous with women's rights, for many of the women who attended these conventions, they realized greater opportunity, freedom, and control over women's daily lives would provide a buffer from the hardships of widowhood, abandonment, and abuse by men. Over the next half century, women helped to secure and even expand rights in state constitutions and laws, as well as in the customs of educational and religious institutions, even as women's suffrage remained elusive. Suffrage might become the main issue of the women's rights movement after the war, but in the 1850s, activists did not narrow their focus. 
The year after Worcester in 1851, Elizabeth Cady Stanton met abolitionist Susan B. Anthony. While Stanton had been active in women's rights activities and conventions since Seneca Falls, Anthony needed convincing. Initially, she was reluctant to join because she feared it would take away from her abolitionist work. But two incidents convinced Anthony of the need for the movement. First, she was denied equal pay at a position as headmistress in Kanajahare, New York. And second, she was denied the right to speak at a temperance convention. Both slights occurred because Anthony was a woman. By 1851, she was ready. Biographers and women's historians typically describe their friendship as a true partnership, a perfect match of different talents, with Stanton providing the intellectual foundation and Anthony the organizational structure of the movement. As Dr. Lori Ginsburg, professor of history at Pennsylvania State University explains, even as individuals, these women stood out in their generation. I think that Stanton was brilliant. I don't think she was the first person to think of women's rights, obviously, or even to demand them, but she was so great at grabbing ideas that floated around her, shaping them in incredibly beautiful, articulate language, and then throwing it out in the world for other people to hear and absorb and react to. She was on fire, and she was truly, I think, one of the great activist intellectuals of her generation, and that's saying a lot because that was a generation filled with them. I think she was sympathetic to the anti-slavery movement, and certainly her husband was an abolitionist. But I don't think that was the passion that drove her. I think she learned at a very young age to express her own resentments and sense of exclusion from what the boys had in terms of education and her father's approval and so on, to express that in a kind of standalone feminism where everything that she experienced, she turned into a lesson about women's subordination and denial of their rights. And I think she was really brilliant at that. Anthony was an amazing organizer. Anthony knew how to take the language and the speeches and the petitions that Stanton articulated so well and convince other women to sign on, to organize them, to hold meetings, to petition throughout New York and elsewhere. And she was really an amazing movement builder. Stanton really didn't care very much about building a movement in the sense of going to meetings. She hated conventions. And she described herself as a leader of ideas, not institutions, and I think that's true. This meeting between Stanton and Anthony began a transformative partnership that would shape reform movements and in particular be the driving force of the women's rights movement for the rest of the century. But the successes we can see in hindsight were not predetermined. In fact, they faced a lot of opposition, not only from men, but also from women. Director Ken Burns reflects on this momentous meeting in the documentary Not For Ourselves Alone. During the next several years, Stanton and Anthony worked ceaselessly on a host of women's rights issues, temperance and divorce reform, co-education and married women's property rights, dress reform, and equal pay for equal work. Stanton was brimming over with indignation and ideas, and Anthony was eager for action willing to do the necessary fieldwork, renting halls, running petition campaigns, speaking wherever she could drum up a crowd that intimidated most women of her time. Everywhere they went, they were vilified as heretics and viciously attacked in the press. When their equal pay proposal came to a vote at a state teachers' convention in Rochester, it was soundly defeated. Most of the women 
voted against it. What an infernal set of fools these school marms must be. Well, if in order to please men they wish to live on air, let them. The sooner the present generation of women die out, the better. We have jackasses enough in the world now without such women propagating anymore. Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Facing resistance from men and women would become a regular occurrence for Stanton and Anthony, and they relied on their friendship and partnership to work through these challenges. In one of their first political contests, Stanton and Anthony supported a Married Women's Property Act in New York. While these acts differed slightly by state, Married Women's Property Acts enabled women to control real estate and personal property, enter into legal contracts independent of their husband, control their wages, and write wills. Mississippi was the first state to adopt one in 1839, granting married women the right to own property, but not to control it in their own names. Over the next decade, five states extended married women some rights over property. Initially, states adopted these acts to allow men to protect their property from seizure during economic depressions. However, all eyes were on New York, the most populous state. In 1845, it had granted women rights to, quote, a patent for her own invention. But New York women wanted more. For six years, Stanton, Anthony, and members of the National Women's Convention gathered thousands of petitions in support of a Married Women's Property Act. In March of 1860, Stanton addressed the Judiciary Committee of the New York State Legislature. In a rousing and eloquent speech, she demanded women be treated like citizens, not slaves. A month later, on April 7th, the New York State Legislature adopted a broad women's property act that would serve as a template for other states. This success brought new attention to women's rights, with women from other states requesting copies of New York's law to begin their own campaigns. For Stanton and Anthony, this was just the beginning. But not all of their ideas were so successful or well-received by the women's movement. The following month, riding high on the success with the New York State Legislature, Stanton made an even more daring proposal at the National Women's Convention in New York City. Speaking before a large crowd at Cooper Union, she supported a resolution declaring that marriage should be only a legal contract and demanded a right for either party to divorce freely in case of chronic alcoholism, abandonment, or abuse. Attendees were outraged, but it was complicated. Considering that a woman had no rights to leave her husband under any conditions, a right to divorce, while controversial, was also seen as an important step in gaining control of her life and the lives of her children. However, divorce meant a woman would be free to remarry, which meant that she would have had sex with two men, and unlike widows, both men would be alive at the same time. But by calling marriage, quote, nothing more than legalized prostitution, Stanton drew strong and angry reactions. She continued, stating, There is one kind of marriage that has not been tried, and that is a contract made by equal parties to lead an equal life with equal restraints and privileges on either side. Thus far, we have had man marriage and nothing more. Most of the attendees were horrified. Even Lucy Stone was outraged despite the fact that she herself would go so far as to consult U.S. Supreme Court Justice Salmon Chase to confirm that no law required her to take her husband's name upon marriage. Though Anthony defended Stanton's position, abolitionist Wendell Phillips called for Stanton's resolution to be expunged from the record. 
Stanton's radical resolution on marriage and divorce not only did not pass, but it remained a constant source of contention for Stanton in every woman's organization she joined, and for generations of like-minded women who followed her. For Stanton, the marriage issue, equality within it and the ability to get out of it, was at the heart of any progress for women. While Stanton and Anthony may have bitterly disagreed with their fellow conventioneers on marriage and divorce, they could not have been more supportive of the more pressing and anticipated conflict, the start of the American Civil War. In this, they were fully aligned with their fellow reformers and worked tirelessly to make the war a war for the abolition of enslaved people. However, there was conflict over whether to continue women's rights conventions during the war. Many of the women's rights advocates were, like Anthony, initially abolitionists, but they had grown to see women's rights as part of the larger struggle for universal rights. Initially, Stanton had advocated that the May 1860 convention be canceled. She believed by throwing the full support of the women's movement behind the abolitionists and the union, a grateful nation would reward women with the vote. Anthony disagreed, but after the convention, she found herself alone in continuing to push a women's rights agenda. And this is where things get tricky. Which option do you choose? In hindsight, we know that this choice to suspend the women's rights movement does do damage to their movement. It kills the momentum. But it also sends a damning message that the women's rights movement, a movement of self-determination, is not as important as abolition in the war. This decision opens up the question, is it important at all? Furthermore, Anthony's fear that the gains the women's rights movement had achieved would be erased was well-founded. State legislatures, including the New York State Legislature, began to chip away at Married Women's Property Acts. It would take decades for many of the rights women lost during the American Civil War to be regained. It would also take decades for the women's rights movement to reignite its momentum and regain its focus. During the Civil War, women throughout the North and the South volunteered and sacrificed to support their side in the conflict. They collected goods for the fronts, they wrote letters home for wounded soldiers, they sewed uniforms and darned socks, they managed homes, businesses, and farms, and they served in a new capacity as nurses. The war, in many respects, presented opportunities for women to demonstrate their capacities as women and as citizens. Northern women in particular, who were beginning to redefine their spheres of influence to include public service and work, flourished during their wartime service. They also assumed that these new roles and newly found responsibilities would be met with reward, suffrage. Stanton and Anthony viewed the war as a time for both support and advocacy. The pair hurled themselves back into public life in September 1862 when President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This presidential proclamation and executive order declared that enslaved people would be free on January 1, 1863, but it only applied to those enslaved and living within the Confederacy. Both Stanton and Anthony were appalled at the narrow scope of the order. In response, on May 14th, they formed a new organization, the Women's Loyal National League. As historian Ann Gordon explains in Ken Burns' film, The Women's Loyal National League took women into political activity that they had not before seen on the national level. Stan and Anthony are suddenly dealing with senators in Washington, not just senators in Albany. 
it attracted women into the movement who had not yet ever had a reason or an occasion to learn about the women's rights movement. This move from state to national politics was huge. While the antebellum women's rights movement had claimed to be a national movement, it was comprised of reformers mostly from New England and the Midwest who focused on gaining states' rights for women, such as the Married Women's Property Acts. Most of the women worked in local capacities, never really considering themselves as part of a larger national movement. A new national focus was a chance for Stanton and Anthony to demonstrate their abilities as reformers and as citizens on a new stage in front of a new audience, the U.S. Congress. Once again, Burns reflects on this transition. Stanton had left Seneca Falls and was now living in New York City, where Henry had been rewarded by the new Republican Party with a patronage job at the Customs House. Anthony moved in with the Stantons, and from there, the two women directed a nationwide petition campaign in support of a new 13th Amendment that would finally free every slave. Their first foray into national politics was a triumph. Senator Charles Sumner lavished praise on Stanton and Anthony. The 400,000 signatures they and the Loyal League had gathered, he said, came from the heart of the country. They had done noble work. In January of 1865, the 13th Amendment passed, abolishing slavery in the United States. Three months later, the Civil War ended, with the Republican Party firmly in control of Congress. Now, surely, the men who had talked for years of the natural rights of human beings would grant women the vote they deserved. The League was the first national women's political organization in the United States. Simply by existing, it demonstrated to the rest of the women's movement, especially those members who were apolitical, the importance of a formal, well-organized political advocacy group. It also showed women and men that women could be, and were, political actors. The continuous petition drive eventually achieved 400,000 signatures and slowly moved the women's rights movement and women's activism from a moral suasion to political action focus. While the 13th Amendment was its stated and achieved goal, the League proved invaluable in creating and supporting the next generation of women's rights advocates and leaders. For Stanton and Anthony, the League also provided a way for them to combine abolition with women's rights. They continued to remind people that petitioning was the only political tool women possessed, and they used it well. Additionally, they continued to express and equate civic service with civic reward. If women had been so successful with a petition, imagine what they could do with the vote. Didn't they deserve the vote? This connection between civic action and civic reward eventually drew Stanton, Anthony, and the women's movement they had worked so hard to build into its greatest conflict. After their success with the League, Stanton and Anthony focused on realizing the civic reward, universal suffrage. In 1866, Stanton became chair of the first post-war National Women's Rights Convention. Her position and vitality in the role were crucial as a new amendment, the 14th Amendment, was nearing passage in Congress. While Stanton supported citizenship rights for the freed slaves, she vehemently objected to the inclusion of the word male into the amendment. Petitions to strike the gendered language were unsuccessful. 
On the same day that the 14th Amendment passed through Congress, Stanton declared the National Women's Movement support for a government based on the broad principle of equal rights for all. Her choice of language was particularly antagonistic with the purpose of rallying fellow activists. This statement was met with mixed support. Wendell Phillips, who had been critical of the women's movement, offered that the women weren't ready for the vote and instead declared, quote, this hour belongs to the Negro. African-American advocate Frances Ellen Watkins Harper declared her support for the black male franchise while remaining undeclared on whether it should be extended to women. Harper concluded her speech by stating, quote, justice is not fulfilled so long as woman is unequal before the law. We are all bound together in one great bundle of humanity. But however contested the meeting became, the conventioneers did form the American Equal Rights Association. This new organization was dedicated to securing voting rights for women and African Americans. Though Lucretia Mott was made honorary president, it was Vice President Elizabeth Cady Stanton who officially took charge. Members of the American Equal Rights Association spread out across the country to support universal suffrage in the states. Susan B. Anthony went out to Leavenworth, Kansas to visit her brother Daniel and to focus on the Kansas suffrage campaign that was, in the words of historian Ellen Carroll Du Bois, the most ambitious and consequential of these state-level universal suffrage campaigns. That's right, you heard me, Kansas. The most ambitious and consequential of the post-war state-level universal suffrage campaigns took place in Kansas. When Anthony arrived in Leavenworth in the spring of 1867, she discovered Kansas Republicans were planning to put two separate referenda before the voters in the upcoming November election, one on black suffrage and one on woman suffrage. Anthony preferred a combined package of universal suffrage, but she recognized these referenda marked an important moment for the women's movement and the question of putting gender into a proposed 15th Amendment. For Anthony, this election cycle would prove significant not just for Kansas, but for the nation. Anthony spent the next few months traveling between Kansas and New York, raising money, attention, and supporters. Lucy Stone and her husband Henry Blackwell answered the call. Quote, speaking every day and sometimes twice, journeying from 25 to 40 miles daily, as Stone wrote in her diary. Early indicators showed the universal suffrage campaign was gaining support for the twin referenda. However, abolitionists like Wendell Phillips, who remained critical of the urgency of women's suffrage, channeled their time and money into supporting only the black suffrage referendum. This division appeared to affirm Congress's decision to limit the rights extended in the 15th Amendment to black men. Within Kansas, the possibility of universal suffrage began to fade. The state Republican Party fell victim to internal politics concerning speakers. In addition, rumors circulated of anti-black women's suffrage supporters clashing with black opponents to women's suffrage, rumors that foreshadowed future racial and gendered rifts among reformers. In the fall, Stanton and Anthony arrived in Kansas anticipating a glorious victory, but quickly discovered the state Republicans had soured on women's suffrage. They tried to work their magic, but in the end found themselves with few clear options to win suffrage for Kansas women. At this point, instead of moving back to New York to re-strategize, Stanton and Anthony made an unusual, and for some, a reprehensible choice. They attached themselves to George Francis Train. Train was a lot of things, an entrepreneur who entangled himself in the Credit Mobile scandal, a world traveler who served as the prototype for Jules Verne's Phileas Fogg in Around the World in 80 Days, and a reformer who supported causes from free speech to free love to woman suffrage. 
but he was also a Democrat. And in 1870, in Kansas, New York, and in reformist circles, that mattered. While Northern Democrats existed, the party was still largely connected to the Old South and to the vestiges of enslavement. What Stanton and Anthony saw in Train was a charismatic personality with a track record of winning people over and an interest in woman suffrage. But here's the catch. Train offered his support for woman suffrage because he believed it would counteract the undeserved and lesser qualified votes of black men. Stanton and Anthony continued to defend their decision, even after Kansas's two referenda failed and after the 15th Amendment was ratified without including women. But other members of the suffrage movement felt betrayed by their support of Train. For Stanton and Anthony, their focus on the single issue of women's suffrage was the most important, really the only important issue. It meant there were no wrong decisions except decisions that compromised a successful campaign for women's suffrage. The racism and betrayals at the heart of the Kansas campaign were repeated and deepened during debates over the 15th Amendment. And this is where we really need to recognize that the women at the center of the women's rights movement and the movement for universal rights were acting in incredibly racist ways, in ways that would be repeated during the movement for suffrage and into the feminist movements of the latter 20th century. While we might be able to step back and see both women and African Americans were victims of the power structures of capitalism, misogyny, and racism, it is important to recognize each member's ability to move within those structures. It is often middle-class white women who, for the sake of their rights, sublimate racial, ethnic, and economically-based rights. Black men don't enjoy the same privilege with white women, but sometimes acted in ways to sublimate black women's rights. Black women were held back by the double bind of gender and race. As Ken Burns describes, Everything came to a head in New York in May of 1869 at the annual convention of the American Equal Rights Association. Frustrated, furious, Elizabeth Cady Stanton denigrated the former slaves whose freedom she had championed all her life. And she suggested that empowering people characterized by ignorance and degradation would create fearful outrages against womanhood. Sambo, she said, like the immigrant newcomer, wasn't ready for the vote as he had 21 years before in Seneca Falls, Frederick Douglass asked to be heard. When there were few houses in which the black man could have put his head, this woolly head of mine found refuge in the house of Mrs. Elizabeth Cady Stanton. There is no name greater than hers in the matter of women's rights and equal rights. But the employment of certain names such as Sambo that I cannot coincide with. Douglas called upon the delegates to rally behind the proposed 15th Amendment without change. He was asking Stanton and Anthony to defer their dreams once again. It must have been an agonizing moment for Stanton and Anthony, as well as a challenging one for their main argument of universal rights. If rights are meant to be universal, then there is no order of admission all rights vest immediately. But we have to step aside for a moment and talk about what just happened. In the course of a single day, the tension over race, gender, and voting rights boiled over into racial name-calling and false assessments about who is a worthier voter that reflect the institutional and systemic racism of the country that even long-standing abolitionists and universal rights advocates resorted to. 
For Stanton, who saw the vote almost exclusively as an individual right, she could not perceive of the voting being a safeguard for the community. The vote was a right denied. For many African Americans, men and women, they saw a voter as someone who could join the political fight against the growing post-war racial violence in the South and protect the hard-won economic, legal, and social rights of the whole community. The vote was a means to an end. Stanton and Anthony believed that only this single-minded focus on women's suffrage, the insistence that it be included in the 15th Amendment at any cost, was worth it. But it was never that simple. As Frances Ellen Watkins Harper observed, quote, We are all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity, and society cannot trample on the weakest and feeblest of its members without receiving the curse in its own soul. It was an irrevocable moment in the movement toward universal rights and a signal to harder-set racism that the women's movement, and frankly many contemporary white female voters, would and continue to perpetuate. Lori Ginsburg considers the larger impact of this moment. What happened after the war was that, I don't think it's fair to say that it's women versus abolitionists. All of these women were abolitionists and women themselves divided on this. But after the war, the Republican Party, which to some degree abolitionists became the left wing of, decided that it was more important to get the vote for African-American men, recently emancipated African-American men. And Stanton and Anthony certainly felt threw women under the bus when they talked about this is the Negro's hour, as the phrase went. They meant we're going to get suffrage for African-American men and not for women of any race. And they felt Stanton and Anthony deeply betrayed by this. And they claimed they were taking the moral high ground and standing on the platform of universal suffrage. Don't give suffrage just to one group. It's time to give suffrage to all Americans, by which, of course, they meant all adult Americans. No one's talking about children's suffrage, which is another concern, another issue. Stanton and Anthony, in my view, could have held to that moral high ground and continued to argue for universal adult suffrage. What they did to their loss, and I believe damaging the legacy of the movement, was they resorted to some extremely ugly racist epithets that can be summarized by saying, we are more fit to vote than these people who have just left slavery and who the vote is being given to. When Stanton and Anthony realized they had lost, they changed their and their movement's focus. For the first time, they realized women must run the movement because they could not rely on men to grant them their rights. Discouraged, they gathered their allies and created a radical new organization, the National Woman Suffrage Association, in May of 1869. Only women could be full members and serve in leadership positions. As a national organization, it would have annual meetings in Washington, D.C. The focus of the group was also different. Unlike previous organizations that spoke of larger, universal freedoms and rights, the National Women's Suffrage Association worked solely to secure suffrage rights for women through a federal constitutional amendment. And like Stanton and Anthony's more recent forays into national women's suffrage, the National Women's Suffrage Association was willing to work with anyone who supported women's rights and suffrage, no matter their other views. This stance led the National to alienate potential supporters. However, its single focus meant it was beholden to no one, no party, and nothing that stood in the way of the goal of women's suffrage, and its members were willing to call out politicians, Republican and Democrat, if their support wavered. A few months later, Lucy Stone formed the American Women's Suffrage Association. A more conservative and numerous group, this association included both men and women and did not campaign in support of gender equality, just women's suffrage. The leadership also chose to focus on what they considered the more attainable goal of state suffrage amendments. 
This split in the women's movement would last only two decades, but would do inestimable damage. After the failed attempt to include women in the 15th Amendment, Stanton, Anthony, and their supporters considered one more option. In 1869, Francis and Virginia Minor, who were married abolitionists, equalitists, and suffragists from Missouri, created a new strategy. Known as the New Departure, they argued that the U.S. Constitution implicitly enfranchised women through Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. Quote, All persons born or naturalized in the states and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and the state wherein they reside. Since women were counted as citizens, and citizenship included an implicit right to vote, women could, in fact, vote. The National Women's Suffrage Association endorsed the new departure and encouraged women across the country to attempt to vote and, if denied, to file lawsuits. Women across the country engaged in this act and even drew national attention in the 1870 congressional and presidential contests, but little else came of the efforts. Finally, in 1872 and 1875, two women, Susan B. Anthony and Virginia Minor, had their cases heard in federal court. Most of the women who tried to register to vote were simply turned away. However, in 1872, Anthony, who had been successful in registering, was arrested for trying to cast a ballot. Charged with violating New York State's election law, Anthony argued that the recently adopted 14th Amendment guaranteed her right as a citizen, arguing, quote, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. The judge in the Federal Circuit Court did not agree with Anthony's interpretation of the 14th Amendment and instructed the jury to find Anthony guilty. Anthony was fined $100 but refused to pay. This refusal should have resulted in jail time, but the judge announced he would not send Anthony to jail, effectively preventing her from taking her case to the U.S. Supreme Court. At the same time Anthony argued her case in front of the judge in Rochester, New York, Reese Happersett, the registrar of St. Louis County, Missouri, refused to register Virginia Minor to vote on the grounds that she was a woman. Her husband, Francis, sued, alleging the Missouri State Constitution, which allowed only men to vote, was in violation of the 14th Amendment's guaranteed citizenship rights, which Minor argued entailed voting rights. At this point, if you're wondering why Francis filed suit and not Virginia, it's important to note that among the many things Missouri women weren't allowed to do in 1872, filing lawsuits was on that list. Her husband Francis had to do it for her. Luckily, Francis and Virginia Minor had an equalitarian marriage, so he was part of the New Departure Movement and an associate of the National Woman Suffrage Association. But the fact that Virginia was not considered a legally independent person in Missouri and thereby could not file suit on her own tells us just how important it was for women to obtain the non-suffrage rights alongside the right to vote. The Missouri Supreme Court ruled against the minors, citing the near-universal practice of restricting voting rights to men. While the Missouri Supreme Court rejected the minors' argument, it did open the door for the sought-after appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Finally, the question of whether citizenship implied voting rights would be decided. Unfortunately for the minors in the New Departure Movement, the court unanimously upheld Missouri's decision. In his 1875 opinion, Chief Justice Morrison Waite not only declared that voting was not an inherent right of citizenship, but that voting was also not included in the privileges and immunities guaranteed to citizens by the 14th Amendment. It would not be until 1964, 
89 years after this case, and even 44 years after women were recognized as voters, that the U.S. Supreme Court would finally view voting as a fundamental right of citizenship, covered by the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. By 1875, the women's movement had suffered a series of defeats that would help define the next phase of the movement. The question over citizenship, race, and gender may have divided the movement into bitter factions, but there was no longer any question as to the importance of suffrage. As historian Kathleen Berry argues, it had become a movement about men denying women the right to vote, and it would take women nearly a century to back them down. next episode of Hindsight, we will explore how the two women's movements struggled apart and finally came back together. We will consider the compromises made when attempting to incorporate Southern and conservative women into a movement that counted African-American women and radical thinkers among its longest serving members. We will examine how the American West became a breeding ground for some of the suffrage movement's earliest successes. And we will discover a whole new generation of women suffrage activists that continue the work started by Stanton and Anthony, all the while taking the movement in new and exciting directions. Hindsight is hosted by Dr. Robin Henry and produced by Fletcher Powell in the studios of KMUW in Wichita, Kansas. The digital editor for the podcast is Beth Golay. All artwork for Hindsight is created by Jordan Kirtley. Support for Hindsight comes from Drs. Martha and Daniel Householder, the George R. Tiller MD Memorial Fund for the Advancement of Women's Health, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.